So Lord, we say where you lead us, we will follow. We pray that that would really be true and that we would hear you, that we would know you, that we might really follow you from the depths of our being. Lord God, we pray that in the name of Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit right now, you'd help us to preach. Amen. And now we pause for a message from our commercial sponsor. So I did some uh, research, uh, went, on the, uh, went on the web, and I found out that a 15.2 ounce, about a one pound uh, crystal bottle of Chanel Number no. 5, their best stuff, their parfum, cost $1,850. $1,850 for water with a pleasing aroma. It's ironic that they chose that song for their commercial. I'm a fool to love you. Because it does seem kind of foolish to love like that. Jesus said, whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Did you know that 1.1 billion people in our world live on less than a dollar a day? And it's Christmas, it's Jesus' birthday. Perfume commercials will appear all over your television in the next few weeks. And what are you going to give him, Jesus, for his birthday? What are you going to give him? A pleasing aroma in a crystal container? One day about 25 years ago, this brand new youth pastor at Bel Air Presbyterian Church in Southern California, I took a little one-day trip across the border. My father, my good friend Dave and I met a missionary in downtown uh, Tijuana who, who took us to a place that I will never forget, the old Tijuana city dump. It sat on a hillside from which you could see San Diego. As we walked through the dump, dirty faces covered in grease and shame peered at us from behind these piles of trash. They lived there sorting trash, trying to eke out a living. I met one lady who had just given birth to a baby under a piece of carpet slung over a rope. 
That was her home. Two miles from California. Over the next four years, my high school youth group would build homes in that dump. For about $1,000, less than a crystal bottle of Chanel number no. five, we could build a home um, 20 by 10, 200 square feet, two rooms, which would house 12 people. Within four years, they renamed that old dump, the Ciudad de Amor, City of Love. The dump changed, but even more importantly, the people changed. And I, Peter Hyatt, felt like a superhero. A superhero. It was awesome. I still remember um, traveling back uh, to, to Bel Air on Interstate 5 that very first day. All those pictures still in my head and this feeling of indignation and a desire to do something about it, responsibility and all these scriptures, scriptures on stewardship kept running through my head. We were driving up Interstate 5 and I remember we, we looked to our left and someone saw the Crystal Cathedral. And we thought, hey, let's, let's get off and take a look. And, and so we did. They had this like volunteer tour guide us around and at the end of the tour um, she showed us this the the pipe organ it was absolutely extravagant back in 1982 it cost two million dollars and over the years they've added to it so it's worth even much more than that she told us all about it revealed the cost and then she said this and I quote but of course it's not our organ it's Jesus organ And I thought about the dump. I thought about those Bible verses. Whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. I, I thought about Jesus. I, I grabbed the lady by the car and I screamed, Jesus doesn't want a pipe organ any more than he wants a stinky bottle of perfume. Why was this not sold for $3 million and given to the poor? I grabbed her and I screamed. In my mind, not in reality. <laughs> I didn't want to get arrested or, or anything. But I really did feel righteous indignation. Or maybe pride. Hey, let's look at our Bible verse for the morning. John 11, verse 57, where we left off last time. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know that they might arrest him. Remember, the Sanhedrin had just decided that it was expedient to kill Jesus in order to save the nation. Next verse, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, there came to two miles from Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin, therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. We talked about that last time. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound, a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She has kept it. 
for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Wow. I mean, do you think we get Jesus, like, at all? At all? A denarii was a day's wage. So 300 denarii in a society with a six-day work week was a year's wage. How much are you paid for a year of your labor? That's how much Mary dumped on the feet of Jesus. And she dumped it on Jesus' feet in a society where people often starved to death and the standard of living was similar to the Tijuana dump. It was pure nard. That means it was parfum from India delivered by a caravan and sealed in an alabaster flask. It was far more valuable than Chanel No. 5. Undoubtedly, it was Mary's greatest treasury, treasure and, and it was like an heirloom. It was her family's security probably, her security, and she poured it out on Jesus. If you remember, at least once before something like this had happened, um, Luke records it. Uh, Jesus was at a, at a banquet in a Pharisee's house and a woman of the city, a prostitute, came and did this. Uh, Matthew and Mark also record a similar story that may very well be this story, but in all four Gospels, women just come along and like dump extremely valuable perfume on Jesus. And it's totally inappropriate. Utterly extravagant and totally inappropriate. It was inappropriate for a woman to even talk to a man in public. Let alone let down her hair. That was highly inappropriate. That meant something about the woman. Well, Mary not only talks to him and lets down her hair, she then dumps a perfume on his feet and rubs it in with her hair. Mark and Matthew record that the perfume was dumped on his head. Whatever the case, in, in, in all the those three gospels, Jesus implies that his entire body was anointed. A pound of pure nard would cover him and her. I mean, she's out of control, soaked in perfume as she soaks Jesus in perfume. And the house fills with a fragrance. Whatever this is, is like totally unconstrained. And so the people stand there and must have thought, what the heck is she thinking? What is she thinking? Well, I'm pretty sure I know what she's not thinking. Gosh, let's see. Is that about uh, 10% of my annual income before or after taxes? <laughs> Ooh, and am, am I being a good steward? I mean, will, will this be used to accomplish our fiscal goals for the coming year? No. What was Mary thinking? Well, I'm not sure that she was thinking. It was more like she was feeling seized by the power of a great affection like we talked about last time. Feelings, like we said last time, aren't illogical so much as hyperlogical. They're more logic than we can comprehend. Listen to Paul in Romans 12 verse 1. He writes, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Ouch! <laughs> I mean, that seems incredibly illogical, irrational, Unreasonable to me. 
He writes, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your logikos, logical, reasonable, rational worship. Mary's feelings were highly logical, even if she didn't comprehend the logic. Jesus said, she has kept this perfume to anoint me for the day of my burial. I don't know that Mary could comprehend that meaning. However, she felt that meaning, and that meaning comprehended her. Jesus was going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. He's going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and Jesus is, what's for dinner? This is wild, but you know, for a thousand years, God had the Israelites offer a food offering to him, a, a lamb, one in the morning and one in the evening, Numbers 28.8. It was, quote, a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. To the Lord, a, a pleasing aroma. The phrase is used, like, at least in my English Bible, something like over 40 times in the Pentateuch describing the sacrifices and offerings in the house of the Lord. Some offerings, you know, were just burn up. And some of them, they were eaten as, as communion with God. God rarely explains them as if we could comprehend them, and yet, he likes them. <laughs> Why do it? A pleasing aroma unto the Lord. And it's thoroughly extravagant. When, when Solomon dedicated the house, uh, they sacrificed 22,000 bulls, 122,000 sheep, among truckloads of other stuff that's utterly impractical, illogical, and wasteful to us. And now it's Passover. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims will be coming to Jerusalem. In a few days, there would be a literal river, a river of lamb's blood that would flow from the Temple Mount down into the Kidron Valley, down the Kidron Valley into Gehenna and on to the Dead Sea, the abyss. Absolutely extravagant. And Jerusalem would be filled with the pleasing aroma of roast lamb, broken bread, and blood red wine. The temple of the Lord was to be continually filled with pleasing aromas. Incense, roast lamb, the sacrifice of love, the pleasing aroma. And now if you wonder yourself, well dang, how much did all that pleasing aroma cost? Well, that depends on how much a lamb is worth. How much is a lamb worth to you? How about one that takes away the sins of the world? Thirty pieces of silver, perhaps? How much do you figure? How much do you think? We well, see, I think Mary stopped figuring, and I doubt that she was thinking, but she was worshiping, proscuneo. She was kissing toward. She was kissing the feet of Jesus with everything that she had, and the fragrance filled the house. She was worshiping, and that, my friends, is the logic of heaven. John 5, 23, Jesus told the woman at the well, I'm thirsty, and worship 
That is what my father seeks. So what do you suppose that Jesus is thinking at this moment? Mary, get a, get a grip. I mean, is he embarrassed by this lack of decorum and moral sensibilities, this extravagant love without limit? No. He's drinking it. He's drinking it in like living water from a fountain. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus says, this is it. This is the beautiful thing, the, the good thing. And what she has done uh, will be shared with the entire world. Wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done, this story will be told of her. She's anointing him for his death. In other words, she sees his glory. And she worships extravagantly, freely, and without limit. Later, perhaps, she felt rather spent, exposed, and foolish, but worshiping, at least for, for a few moments, uh, worshiping, she lost herself in Jesus. And so we do kind of wonder, along with those people, what the heck was Mary thinking? But you know, I know exactly what Judas was thinking. <laughs> Understand Judas. He's calculating. $90,000 of perfume is 90 houses that I could build, is 1,080 people that I would house that would join the cause and appear in the newsletter. I'd save them and I'd be a superhero. John tells us that Judas was a thief. And I think he means far more than money. I mean, you, you can probably justify that. He, you know, his expense account, he's keeping control of, of the books. Uh, I think he was a thief of more than money. I think he was a thief of glory. He stole glory. In other words, he felt responsible for saving his world. And so you see, I don't think Judas disliked Jesus. I think Judas really admired Jesus. Jesus had been his, his, his role model. Jesus was the one that Judas trusted second most in all the world. And Jesus was incredibly useful to Judas. Gosh, I mean, with Jesus, they'd feed the poor, they'd heal the sick, they'd banish the oppressors and establish Zion, the geopolitical nation state of, of Israel. Jesus was incredibly useful to Judas. He was the expedient choice. The pragmatic decision, at least until now, until Jesus walked into Jerusalem talking about dying. See, Judas had so admired Jesus, he wanted to be Jesus, the Savior of Israel. Kind of just like the Sanhedrin thought that they saved Israel. And so they all made an expedient, prudent, pragmatic choice, a, a, a judgment that they would save Israel. And it wasn't just them. Matthew and Mark reveal that all the disciples agree with, with Judas. And I think probably mostly we do too. We think it's our job to save people. And so we think, so we judge, dumping $100,000, $100,000 on the feet of Jesus in the form of a pipe organ or expensive perfume, well, that's just foolish. 
That's bad stewardship. Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Who was the faithful steward? Judas? Or Mary? You know, in Jesus' parables, the unfaithful steward is the most cautious steward. The one who buries the money in a napkin, the one who keeps the perfume in the bottle. The unfaithful steward is the one with the least faith, hence unfaithful. The least faith in the outrageously generous heart of his master. And check this out. Jesus is the heart of your master. And pay attention to scripture. Your master isn't short of cash. He turns water into wine, good wine, that you could sell and make a bundle of money. I mean, he makes coins appear in the mouth of fish. You can read about it in the Gospel of Luke. He's not short of cash. It's something else that he seeks. Well, anyway, Mary saw Jesus from, from the bosom of the Father. She saw Jesus break over her, and now she breaks over him like a priceless bottle of perfume, spilling the most extravagant love freely and without limit. Have you ever done that? Have you ever given like that? Every Sunday morning, right? I mean, I hear it as the plate goes around, people weeping. I've given all and I want to give more. And people come to my office, they knock on the door and say, Pastor Peter, can we please get bigger offering plates? We need bigger offering plates. I need to give more. I want to give more. No, I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> kind of, kind of. You know that giving to Jesus is to be your whole life. And so it's not simply giving to an institutional church like this. Sometimes I've given 10% to church. Sometimes I've given more. Sometimes I've felt called to give nothing to church because that's where I get my salary and I'm called maybe to give it in other places. But, but I don't think that I've ever, ever given like Mary. Well, maybe except for once. And that was actually two miles from here, 29 years ago, down on 16th Street at Kenmark Jewelers. I've been circling the block in my 67 Mustang with two 20-amp coaxial speakers mounted in the back deck, powered by a Pioneer stereo with a power booster. I had the volume all the way up, and I was cranking REO Speedwagon singing, don't let her go. As I drove around the block over and over, I was psyching myself up. I've been dating her for four years. As I talked to Harry the jeweler, he's this old Jewish guy that Susan's family knew. As I talked to Harry the jeweler, adrenaline coursed through my veins. My life flashed before my eyes because see, it wasn't just my money. It was, it was my life. Harry began showing me diamonds. You know, diamonds are incredibly extravagant and foolish. I had no practical purpose for a diamond whatsoever, but I had to have one. I wanted one. I needed one. I had to get one. I, I tried to stay calm and collect in order to drive a good bargain with Harry. Uh, some stones were impossible for me to buy, but other stones were just too inexpensive. And this was the weird thing. When Harry would quote a price too low, I, I wanted to just scream, Harry! Charge me more. Harry, 
I, I want to spend more. Harry, you see, I got to spend everything that, that I've got. Harry, break the bank and pour me out. See, Harry, I got this girl, and she's, she's everything to me. Harry, she's gorgeous, and Harry, she loves me. I never thought that someone like that would love someone like me. Harry, charge me more. Harry, did you know that a diamond is forever? And, and Harry, wherever she goes in this world, this day will be remembered. But Harry, I see, I really don't care about the diamond. I can't tell one from another anyway. And she'll say yes to me if I give her plastic. In fact, she's already said yes to me. Harry, it's not about the diamond. And Harry, I can't buy her love. She's already given me her love. Harry, it's just that I want to give everything to her. I want to bleed for her. Harry, I want to sacrifice for her. Harry, I've seen her broken for me and I want to break for her. Harry, I don't want to do it. I mean, I don't have to do it. I want to do it. And that's why I have to do it. Harry, I'm a prisoner of love. It's foolish. It's extravagant. But Harry, uh, I gotta do it. It may be wrong, Harry. But it's love. It may be wrong. Actually, it was wrong, probably. I spent all of my student loan money, <laughs> which was probably some of your tax dollars. <laughs> you know, you can make a case that Judas, in one sense, was right. Because I've hung around poor people. I, and Jesus said, whatever you do, Lisa, whatever you do, I, I think most of the time they'd rather have than perfume. But if Judas was right, it was for the wrong reason. And so he'd take from the poor even as he gave to the poor. Give them money, take their dignity. T.S. Eliot wrote, the greatest evil is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Well, if Mary did the wrong thing, she did it for the right reason, and therefore it was absolutely perfect. Mary fulfilled the entire law with love. And if you say, well, what good is love? Well, you obviously then have not met love. You've only used love, a crucified love. What good is love? Love is the good. And this is the miracle. It spilled out of Mary <laughs> all over Jesus. And now remember, this is in a society where they don't have laundromats or public showers. That means that in six days, when John, who wrote this gospel, lays his head on Jesus at the Last Supper, he'll smell it. Extravagant love. And the following morning, when the soldiers uh, strip Jesus and take that seamless tunic, they'll smell it. The testimony of extravagant love. Someone loved this man extravagantly. And when Jesus hangs on the cross and the sky grows dark and the earth shakes, he can smell it. And maybe he didn't feel uh, entirely alone for his body had been anointed with extravagant love. And perhaps he is alone on your cross, in your shame, in your sin and sorrow, until you see him there. 
and anoint him there with extravagant love. Anoint him with your worship and crown him king of glory in the temple of your heart. He really does bear your sorrow upon the cross. And when you see him there, you will worship. Well, as he, the Passover lamb, was slaughtered, think about this, as he, the Passover lamb, was slaughtered, as he took away the sins of the world, as he made all things new, enthroned upon his cross, he smelled it. And so what is it worth to him? He's always the one we forget. What is it worth to him, to him? Oh, far more than 300 denarii. That perfume is worth his body broken and his blood shed. John writes, we love because he first loved us. Mary broke for she saw Jesus broken for her. He came to her, whelped with her at Lazarus' tomb in her sorrow. She saw the glory of love and then she saw the power of love as God raised Lazarus from the dead. And when Jesus came to Bethany six days before Passover, she saw the sacrifice, the sacrifice that would open the fountain. She saw the sacrifice of God and she sacrificed herself and the house was filled with the fragrance of unlimited love. She was saved. She was saved. And Jesus saved her. He's the Savior, and she's the worshiper. He's the Savior. But Judas thought he was the Savior. The Sanhedrin thought they we're the Savior. Maybe we think we're the Savior, or, or we think we must be the Savior because we don't trust that Jesus already is the Savior, for we don't believe that God has already loved us extravagant, freely, and without limit. John 1, 9, Jesus enlightens all men. John 1, 29, Jesus takes away the sins of the world. John 3, 17, Jesus saves the world. John 4, 34, Jesus accomplishes God's work. John 6, 37, Jesus gives life to the world. John 12, 46, Jesus will draw all people unto himself. John 19, 30, it is finished. I mean, dang, if I really believe the scripture, there's like nothing left for me to save. For everything that's anything has been saved or is being saved because it was saved on the cross by Jesus. And so there truly is nothing left for me to save. There's nothing left for me to accomplish, nothing left for me to even earn. I mean, it's all like when I bought Susan's wedding ring. When I bought it, I had nothing, nothing, nothing to earn. So it wasn't work. It was worship. Jesus said, this is what you must be doing to be doing the work of the Lord. Believe in him and the one whom he has sent. Who's the one whom he sent? Jesus, the Savior. If you don't trust that he's the Savior, you'll make yourself the Savior and you'll betray the real Savior like Judas. 
like each one of us, every time that we sin, listen to Paul, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Jesus is not short of cash. But right now, in this world of space and time, I think maybe he is short of something else, short of faith. Faith in grace, his extravagant, free, and endless love. Faith in grace is heaven, the opposite of hell. Faith in grace is worship. Revelation 5, read it. Faith in grace is worship. Heaven is, is, is worship. Now, now listen, we're called to worship him in everything that we do. We're called to worship him in the last and the least of these as we watch him save the last and the least of these and even use us to do so. We're called to worship him here through songs, prayer, sermons. We serve him with our worship. He's the superhero. And we are his bride. I think the modern American evangelical church has kind of forgotten that. And so we tend to look a little more like Judas or the Sanhedrin and a little less like Mary. Most believe that God is all-powerful, but not all-love, or that he is all-love, but not all-powerful. I mean, most believe that God can save, but doesn't really want to save, or that God wants to save, but really can't save. Most think God is a savior like themselves, <laughs> limited in power, and even more limited in love. And so uh, they must save themselves, and thus they act like Judas. Most don't trust God's judgment of extravagant, free, and, and endless love. Most can't see the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world, and they, they can't hear him as he calls from his throne, Behold, I make all things new. But I think we can, at least a little bit. And I think that's why we've been called to this time and to this place to anoint Jesus, the Savior, with his own extravagant love. And perhaps the world will smell some of it on our clothes and in our hair. But that's not our concern. Jesus is the Savior, and we are the worshipers. You know, this Thursday is the three-year anniversary of the sanctuary. I can't tell you the number of times that I have felt out of control, spent, exposed, foolish. And yet that would make sense if in fact we are broken like Mary and dumping all our perfume on the feet of Jesus. You know, I've often felt, this maybe part of the foolishness, I've often felt like, um, we have to accomplish something. And thus, worship, the worship service, is the way that we psych ourselves up for that something. But worship is that something. You know, sometimes I felt like I've had to justify giving campaigns. You know, when we do the offering, justify them with mission projects. Because the worship service really doesn't matter. Do you see how warped that is? That's the mind of Judas. 
For, for what is this? What is the preacher, the song leader, the building, the custodians, the pastors, even the mission projects? What are they? What is all of this? You see, it's all perfume that together we purchase in order to pour it on the broken body of Jesus as an offering of love. So unless these things help you worship, unless these things help you see Jesus, trust Jesus, and anoint Jesus, these things are all worthless <laughs> to Jesus. This is a worship service. We're here to serve worship to Jesus as he saves the world. Did you get it? But now check this out. If all of this helps you to worship, if all of this helps you to anoint Jesus with your love and your praise, if all of this helps you to worship, there is no way to calculate its worth. To him. To him. He's the Savior and we are the worshipers. He's the eschatos Adam, the Superman, and we are his bride. He's the superhero and this is us. I don't think I'm too weird, but the first time I saw this, I just couldn't help crying because all of a sudden I realized who we are. He's the superhero, and this is us. Mary, Mary Jane. Had to do what I had to do. Jane. You shouldn't be here. I know there will be risks, but I want to face them with you. It's wrong that we should only be half alive, half of ourselves. I love you. So here I am, standing in your doorway. Isn't it about time somebody saved your life? We'll say something. Thank you, Mary Jane Watson.
were the bride of Christ. Now Mary Jane knows that she cannot save Spider-Man the way Spider-Man just saved her. But what can she do? She can anoint him with kisses as he saves the world. She can anoint him with extravagant love. You know, when I think that I have to save the world, like Spider-Man or Jesus, I start to live like Judas. But when I worship, I begin to live like Mary, extravagantly, freely, and without limit. And now if you think that means that I don't do anything, or we don't do anything, you are just gravely mistaken. Because you see, the bride of Christ gives everything. And she becomes impregnated with everything. The very life of her groom, it's called fruit. People may think that's work, but not for Mary. It's worship. And I should tell you, it really wasn't work that turned the Tijuana dump into the Ciudad de Amor, the city of love. A construction company, really, seriously, could have built all those houses probably in a few days. But they couldn't have changed those lives, saved those souls. That city comes down from heaven. You see, it wasn't work. It was worship. It was teenagers pregnant with the life and the love of Jesus. It wasn't Judas. It was Mary. Don't be Judas. You were Mary. And so the night that he was delivered up, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Covenant, like a marriage covenant. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Body broken, blood red wine, a fragrant offering. And so come to the table and receive God's offering and offer yourself a fragrant offering. And the fragrance will fill the entire house. In Jesus' name, I'm calling you to worship. Amen. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. They're both a fragrant offering given to you. Let's worship. So close your eyes, would you? Because I just want to ask you that question again. What are you going to get Jesus for Christmas? What is he asking of you? What, what does, he, does he want? Does he want you to save the world? Is that what he wants? Is he asking you to end global poverty? Because he said the poor you will have with you always. 
You know, if I think that what he wants, the gift he wants is for me to save the world, well, that's a pretty hard gift to give and I'm gonna be pretty stressed about it and I might just start stealing fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and judging people and um, if they didn't respond to what I said, I'd probably resort to weapons of fear and intimidation and maybe declare war like a jihad or an inquisition and my heart would turn to stone. But is that what he wants? No. From you, he wants worship. A living sacrifice. And, and that means you can just give it to him at any moment. Any moment, you can, you can give it to him right now. You, you, you give it to him. You just say, I lay myself down and worship you, um, Lord Jesus. And, and you know, um, that's easy to do when the sun's shining and the birds are flying around and chirping and stuff. And sometimes it feels so hard to do when you're thinking of your sin and your sorrow and the sky is gray. But in those moments, think of him. He's there, waiting for you to see that he has borne your sin, your sorrow. He's there. He's just giving you a taste of what it costs him to love you. And you see, that's not to make you feel, feel, feel guilty. It's to fill you with awe because he has always loved you. And he will not stop loving you. And, and so worship. And get this, when you worship, there's a fragrance you can't save the world, but you know that fragrance is mighty powerful. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you can check this out, he says, we are the aroma of Christ unto God. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, an aroma um, to those that are being saved and to those that are perishing. Don't, don't panic. Um, you don't have to save them if they're perishing. God loves them more than you, and I don't think his story is over. But an aroma of God from some life unto life and to others death unto death. And then he says this, who's sufficient for these things? <laughs> Not us, but the fragrance. So worship him as he saves the world. In Jesus' name, amen.